2: It smells best In the evening it's not Worth believing what you heard Soil and Cream's really Just a trick at night People biscuit. take my word. Welcome to I Was There Too. My name is Matt Gorley. This is the show where I talk to people who are present in the great scenes of cinema history. Today's guest was actually, I think, the very first person I thought of for this show. She plays the woman with the baby carriage in the Untouchables Union Station staircase shootout. And she was the perfect example of the type of person I was looking for for this show, someone who was in a great scene and has such a memorable role that the scene itself wouldn't be as iconic without them. And Melody Ray, who's my guest, was such a wonderful interview, and it was really nice to talk to her. Unfortunately, we had a few technical difficulties because she lives in Washington, and we ended up having to do the interview by phone, so it's a little bit shorter than I would have liked it to have been. I felt like I could have asked her a million questions But at the same time, I've picked up the slack and added a special new segment in the second half of the show. Today's movie is The Untouchables, which was a favorite of mine. It was really the return of Sean Connery in many ways. He had been doing a lot of uh, more, let's call them, experimental films, where he probably wears some kind of speedo and thigh-high boots, like Zardoz. Or he was sort of retreading old territory in Never Say Never Again, And the scene in particular that Melody was a part of, if you haven't watched it, I highly recommend you check it out on YouTube before even listening to this. It's only about five minutes long. It is mostly in slow motion, but it's interesting it's not in super slow motion. The editing is amazing. And when you hear that this wasn't how the scene was originally conceived, it makes it all the more impressive. This movie also came out in a time when uh, gangster lore was at its height. Geraldo Rivera did a TV special about opening Al Capone's vault. They found the secret vault of Al Capone and I remember everybody I knew gathered around the TV that night to see them open Al Capone's vault live and all they ended up finding was just broken bottles and the shreds of Geraldo Rivera's career. And this scene itself is action-packed. It's full of uh, gunfire and as you're going to find, I think as this podcast goes on and on, I've always been obsessed with Squibs, which are the electronically ignited movie blood packs. So I ask her about that. And uh, it is my goal to really get somebody on the show who's been squibbed. I have a lifelong dream of being squibbed myself. This movie was originally conceived to be in black and white. And uh, there's something odd and special about this movie. It's directed by Brian De Palma, who you could say is right there on the edge of being an auteur director himself. His movies are very, very distinct to his style. Then add in, costumes are done by Giorgio Armani, and they're amazing costumes, but heightened in a way where they're almost halfway between a realistic movie and a movie like Dick Tracy. The music is by Ennio Morricone, who we all know from Spaghetti Westerns, so he's bringing his own style to the table. And then on top of that, David Mamet, the famous theater playwright, wrote the script. So there's something about this film that Even though it's Brian De Palma's movie, it it really isn't one unique vision, but it's not a total collaboration either. You can kind of see everybody's style pop in at different times, and it creates this almost hyper-violent cartoon, melodrama, gangster epic that I've never seen in another type of movie before. Perhaps there were too many cooks, but they were all kind of master chefs, and so maybe it, it tastes really good but it doesn't taste as good as this ham-fisted analogy I just found myself getting into. All right, I think it's maybe time we get started. Let's connect last week's guest to this week's guest. Greg Proops to Liam Neeson in The Phantom Menace. Liam Neeson to Famke Janssen in Taken. Famke Janssen to um, Desmond Llewellyn, who played Q in Goldeneye. Stay with me. Desmond Llewellyn to Sean Connery in any given James Bond movie, Sean Connery to Melody Ray in The Untouchables. Man, I never breathed during those. Okay, let's get started with this interview, and it kicks off with some real high-minded cinema history talk. Here we go. The film, The Untouchables, the year 1987, the actress, Melody Ray, the role, Union Station Woman, or the lady with the baby carriage in the train station staircase. Melody Ray is coming to us from Yelm in Western Washington. Melody, thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Matt, I'm so pleased to do this.
2: I think I told you that you're one of the first people I thought of for this project because I always remembered how your part and the baby rolling down the staircase added such dramatic tension to this scene. Now, you have the unique distinction of being an integral figure in one of modern cinema's most memorable scenes, but also that scene is an homage to the Battleship Potemkin, one of cinema history's most important scenes. That's got to feel pretty good.
0: Yes, and you know what was so funny about that? When I was in high school, I took a film course. That was one of the films that I happened to see, and I remembered that scene. And when they brought me in to do that scene, um, which was all improv, by the way, I, I was like, going, this looks vaguely familiar. (laughs) Um, So one never knows when one's in high school, what may come back to visit in later life. So
2: that's fascinating. Now you say the scene on the day was improvised, but did you have an audition process or was there any kind of reading? Oh,
0: that's the weird thing, Matt. I got a call. I was, I was working as a waiter downtown in Chicago and I got a call from my agent and they said, uh, they want you for the untouchables which happened to be filming. Everybody knew that at the time. And I was like, okay, uh, where do I go for the audition? What time's the audition? And they were like, no, they want you. Seriously, and I'm like, what do you mean? Well, I finally sort of put two and two together. I had auditioned for Lynn Stallmaster about a month previously. Um, I didn't get that part, but he somehow remembered me. And what had happened was... um, Apparently, they had a completely other scene planned for that, but they spent a lot of money in Montana on that big shoot, that outdoor shoot, the um, Canada border Yes, thing. right. Uh, They had a little too much fun, and they ended up not having enough money to do the scene on the train. They couldn't afford the train anymore, so they had to completely revamp it. They didn't have time for auditions, I'm assuming. So he just basically remembered me, called my agent, and said, send her over to do this part. So I didn't even know what the part was. I had no script. I didn't know what the character was. And nobody else seemed to know what the character was. Uh, Costumes met me. They put me in this really kind of strange little wool suit. And um, when I showed up on the set, uh, Brian De Palma was like, no, 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 that's absolutely wrong. That's not who she is. She's poor. She's poor. So Costumes was a little ticked off. They take me back. They're muttering under their breath like, I'll show him poor. And they throw me in these rags. And – and basically saying, I'll, you know, I'll show him or I hope he's happy now. But once I got into that costume, I was like, oh, now I know who she is. Oh, interesting. Um, and, it was, and it was perfect. And it was exactly what he wanted, you know. Um, but again, because this was sort of all happening, you know, at the moment, nobody had any information. It was literally coming out of Brian De Palma's head um, as he sat there. I would see him sitting on the bench. Um, And just sort of muttering to himself and and going over things. And as they came up, he would shift and change. And um, it was very much in the moment.
2: That's so amazing to hear because when you see the final cut of the scene, it looks so planned to the point where I thought maybe it had been storyboarded. The editing is brilliant. It looks It looks nothing like something that was developed on the set that week or that day. That's amazing. Um,
0: Amazing. I think there was a little bit of dialogue that comes in at the end that may have been part of the initial scene. Um, But I know my character didn't have any lines. And again, when I was brought to the set um, and we started to work... um, uh, we took a break, and all of a sudden, sound came over to me and starts putting a microphone on me. And I'm like, "Oh no, no, no! I don't, I don't have any lines." And he goes, "Oh well, uh, they told me to come over here." I said, "Oh, they must have meant somebody else because I, I don't have any lines." And. All of a sudden, I hear from far away. I hear De Palma yelling. I like what she's saying. I want to hear her. Mic her up. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Even when I hear you say to the cost or to the microphone person, I don't have any lines. I want to stop you and go. No, go with it. They'll give you lines.
0: Oh my God! <laughs> he was. He didn't know. And again, he didn't know what was going on either. So he's thinking, well, maybe she's right. Maybe I'm with the wrong person. So <laughs>
2: now I can't help but yeah, notice. Your your Brian De Palma impersonation is a little fiery. Was that what he was like on set?
0: He he was um, at certain times, but uh, but he was really like a um, like a child, uh, really creating. Because as I said, this was something that was just sort of he was trying to take what was supposed to happen before and and create it in a different environment. My character didn't even exist in the previous scene, as far as I know, and. Um, and so, as I said, I would see him, we're in Union Station, and during breaks, he would be sitting on one of the benches there, and I would just sort of see him kind of talking to himself, and, and um, you could just see things flashing in front of his <laughs> eyes, trying to figure out what was going to happen next, and what he had just seen, and how it looked, and, and where to go to from there. It was really a, a wonderful thing to sort of watch his process like that.
2: Wow, we should let the listeners know that originally this scene, like you said, was conceived for a big shootout on a, a train, a 1930s yes. train, and they just didn't have the budget to get a 1930s train, and so they, I think, probably benefited. This this scene is really amazing, and well, uh,
0: the... oh, I, I liked it, and I and again, I had no idea what it was going to look like or what it was going to be or where it was going to be in the film. I didn't know until I went to see the film. And I was like, whoa. (laughs) It was very exciting for me.
2: So take us through the day. You show up the first day, and how long did your portion of this shoot last? Um, Give us a little bit of rundown on that.
0: Well, it was, um, I was booked for five days. Um, I was working as a waiter in the morning, and I got off like at 3 o'clock at go-home Change and show up at the set at seven o'clock, and I would be released at seven o'clock in the morning to go home and shower and change and show up. At work. Oh my God! Um, I was also doing a play at the time at Lifeline Theater um, coming up that following weekend, and um, I was so exhausted. I was we were doing Fan Shen, and I spent a long time sitting on the stage facing the wall until my part would come up. And God bless my fellow. Um, Actors, there they they would you know I'd tell them you're going to have to nudge me because I will probably <laughs> fall asleep. and They would, and they they just you know managed to keep me going. Um, but as I sh- as I as I showed up on the set the first time again, I had no idea what my part was or my character was. So they show me my little trailer and I go in and you know I keep all of my stuff shoved over to my little twelve inches like you have you know in an equity contract. Uh-huh. And um, I'm I'm assuming there's more people coming in there and. Um, no, nobody else. I had my own trailer and I was like, whoa, this is, this is kind of nice. <laughs> um, and, um, as I was, uh, doing my work there, I, I'm a floor sitter. I just like to sit on the floor. Uh-huh. Um, and so at one point, uh, as I was waiting, I, I just sat down on the floor and all of a sudden, I hear echoing through Union Station, "Chair for Miss Ray, chair for Miss Ray, chair for Miss Ray," <laughs> and people come running. And I'm like, you know, I'm ba- as far as I know, I'm just basically an extra, with a couple, you know. Now I've got a microphone on, I, but I was being treated like royalty. It was quite, quite nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, I met some really nice people. There were, of course, you know, some wonderful uh, actors. Vito D'Ambrosio from uh, Chicago was part of the crew. Um, um, the the cast and some just wonderful people and we got along beautifully. Um in the extras there were some friends of mine that I'd done some theater work and oh if we have time I'll tell you some jokes about that. Because I didn't real I had forgotten I was mic'd and we were we were telling a few jokes about Mr. uh
2: Oh yeah. <clears throat> Give it to
0: us. Yes <laughs> Well, these are just a couple of pals of mine from from a, a show that I had done and they were doing extra work and I was just waiting between scenes and um, they were they were joking with me about, you know, well, oh, you and Kevin Costner are getting along really well. And I'm I'm being a bit baldy about uh, what was going on. And we're laughing back and forth. And all of a sudden, here comes that same little sound man. And he goes, hi, I'm just going to turn your mic off. If that's okay that's <laughs> And I was like, oh, my God. They heard everything that we were saying. I'm
2: sure it never got back so, to Kevin himself.
0: Though. Oh, I don't know. And you know, at this point, I really don't care. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, yeah, it was it was really embarrassing. So I mean, I know the sound crew heard it, and um, and it was it was uh, definitely a moment. First time I'd ever done anything in in film, you know. So of course, I'm not thinking about being mic'd.
2: Yes, um, Definitely of
0: reality theater before reality TV became popular. So,
2: <laughs> I was going to ask you that. So this, in terms of film at least, was the biggest thing you had done to date. And that's usually where you learn the most is on that first time. And, you know, sometimes you learn by making mistakes, and that's hilarious. Yeah,
0: it was definitely a mistake.
2: <laughs> All right, so uh, the shoot begins, and you're working with a crying baby and pyrotechnic squib explosions going off. Tell us a little yes. bit about how all that worked. Was that hard to coordinate? Um, did you do it a lot of different ways?
0: Well, again, it, was, it took a long time to shoot it. I mean, it's a small scene, maybe five minutes, and it was a full five days, 12-hour days. Wow. Uh, we went through about, mm, I think there was about six or eight carriages. So I've seen on eBay a couple times things that says, you know, baby car- the baby carriage from The Untouchables, and I'm like, well, there were about eight of them, and most of them broke. <laughs> Wow. So I'm not sure what this thing is is floating around because as the carriage would go down, many of the shots were done without the baby in it, of course, and um, they they it, they literally shattered because those are marble stairs and it would just fall apart. Um, so they had several of them. The baby was the uh, the stunt director's child, and um, he was uh, an absolute delight. In fact, I wonder where he is often think about him. His name was Colin.
2: Yeah, he's got to be close to 30 at this point.
0: Exactly, exactly. So anyway, so Colin was a, a pretty happy baby. He was crying in the very beginning of the scene, mostly because he'd just woken up. And they had him in a wool diaper, uh, appropriate for the time. But can you imagine? Oh, I'd... no. A wool diaper doesn't I have a question Um, about
2: that. So when when you're shooting with a crying child, is it that the child is crying and everybody rallies and says, hurry, we got to get this. It's like when you need the perfect weather at the time of day, we got to shoot with this baby while it's crying. Or did they need the baby to be crying? And this is horrible, but like provoke it in any way? I always wondered how that works.
0: They didn't for that. That just happened. Um, and, and they would, they were fine with it. It didn't matter to them what was happening with the baby. Ah. And we just shot, like I said, we just shot it. We were, we were going, he's climbing up out of the thing. I'm just dealing with whatever's going on. Um, but later on, they needed a scene of him being happy Uh and, uh, they couldn't get him to laugh. And they were doing everything. They were jangling keys and they brought little stuffed toys and they were making jokes and funny faces and nothing. The kid was doing nothing. And and the stunt director said, you know, I'm, I can do it. It's going to be crazy, but I can make him laugh. And they were like, what do you got to do? And they, he goes over to uh, the gunkeeper and he gets a gun. He goes up way up top where you see um, Kevin Costner at the beginning uh-huh. of the scene uh, looking down. He goes up way up there. Colin is down below on the steps and he gets way up there and he goes, Colin, look at daddy. And he shoots off the gun. Bang, bang, bang. And the kid cracks up.
2: <laughs> He's definitely <laughs> his stunt father's son. He's probably a stuntman at this point, I'm sure.
0: Definitely. I, I would think probably so. I thought that was amusing for, for uh, you know, get, trying to get a reaction from a child.
2: <laughs> now, how did you handle all the guns and explosions and squibs and all that sort of thing?
0: it was exciting for me. It didn't, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't um, a problem. I, you know, from, from theater and stuff, I just sort of went with it. And again, you know, coming from a theater background and not having done any film before, I just did what I thought would come next. And, um, you know, I'm diving all over the, the stairs and throwing myself everywhere. And some of the stunt guys came up to me and are like, are you getting stunt pay for this? And I'm like, no and they're like well you should be oh. and, and I, of course I'm like oh you know it's fine but um, I think like the second or third, third day they finally insisted I started to wear knee pads um, and I'm thankful for that because I was starting to get pretty, pretty beat up
2: we're going to take a quick break and then when we come back we'll talk a bit about Kevin Costner how's that?
0: Oh that'd be great
2: okay we'll be right back I'm back with Melody Ray, who plays the Union Station woman in the famous Union Station staircase gunfight. Uh, when's the last time you've seen the movie, Melody?
0: Oh, now that you say that, I what usually ends up happening is I'll be surfing through the TV, you know, as I'm doing my work here, trying to find something for background, and, um, and I'll see it, and I'll turn to it, and it's often just before that scene. <laughs> so I haven't seen it in total in quite some time. Um, mm, probably the last time I saw it was when I, I showed it to some students.
2: Oh, they must have loved that, right?
0: Yeah, they thought it was pretty fun.
2: Yeah, that immediately elevates you to cool teacher. <laughs>
0: And I don't I don't often get the opportunity to do it, but I had I had a group of uh, middle school students, and uh, they wanted to see it, and um, I got permission from their parents. Otherwise, I'm able to show them a little bit of my clip, um, but I just tell them, you know, when you get my, because I teach first and second graders now or kindergartners often, and I'm like, when you get older, ask your parents, and then you can see it, because it's a little bit violent for them. But, yeah, of course. Um, yeah, that was probably the last time I saw it all together. Wow.
2: Now, you worked with Kevin Costner and Andy Garcia in this scene. Kevin Costner was uh, just, you know, he was still in his ascent. Uh, I don't think he had done too many major movies at that point. He was starting to become a known actor. What was it like working with him?
0: It was great because I, of course, had a huge crush on him. Um, (laughs) And I thought he was brilliant. I remember seeing him first in Silverado, and I'm like, who is this guy? Oh, so you knew who he was. Yeah, it wasn't just because he was gorgeous. I mean, there was that element, but there was, the, there was something about him. He had a charisma on screen, and uh, it was sort of nice to see somebody coming up like that that you wanted to see more of. So when I found out that I would be doing a scene with him, I thought, well, this is going to be really cool. Um, he was incredibly kind. Um, he was very thoughtful with the entire cast, uh, very kind to me. Um, as was Andy Garcia, and uh, I feel really honored to have had a chance to work with both of them.
2: Yeah, especially at that time in their career, they were almost the two coolest guys working at the time. Andy Garcia, to me, has always been that. His role in Godfather Three is one of the coolest things I've ever seen.
0: Yes, and he, I don't think, had done that much in film before this, and um, he was extremely generous. Uh, and I remember... Uh, I don't remember where it was, if it was in my trailer or what. I remember it being just before we were going to shoot. I think he came into my trailer just to say that he'd been um, looking at the rushes and stuff, and he said, you were awesome. He said, this is going to be great. And it was just so nice of him to go out of his way to come and tell me something like that. Um, I didn't have the privilege of seeing those things. Um, So I I really appreciated that from him and... um, always kind of had a soft spot in my heart because of that.
2: I can imagine. And now you come from a theater background, correct? Yes. So this must have been a treat also because David Mamet wrote the script and, you know, he was mostly known for theater up until this point.
0: Absolutely. And uh, I I wish there had been a script.
2: I know. I'm just thinking you're in a mammoth script, but you improvised your own lines. And that's a, that's a rare thing, but you're also, (laughs) you're one of the only people that can say, Hey, I get to improvise in a mammoth script. Like my, my words, Trump, his
0: (laughs) hardly. I was so, you know, again, because I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know what I was supposed to say or do. So I'm just saying what felt natural. Of course they had to haul me into loop, uh, later on in New York city, because as Mr. De Palma said, um, you said wonderful about every two seconds. <laughs> we need to cut some of those out. So <laughs> I, I would have know. really appreciated a script at that point.
2: I can think of a few instances where Mamet has repeated words. They're usually more vulgar, but still,
0: that's true. That's true. And I don't know that vulgarity would have been appropriate for her.
2: I know you were. Yes, you were just a, a sweet mother. Now, speaking, I of do it, have to tell yeah. you
0: one quick little story. You know, Please. my father didn't like to go see movies. Um, he's since passed, but my sister managed to drag him out to see this. And of course, I'm expecting the one time in my life for my father to say he's proud of me. But he says to me, "You know, I I don't believe that. If that, that was me, I'd have just left the baby there, taken the things up the steps, and and <laughs> it, it hurt me terribly. And and the funny thing about that was that was exactly what I did." When I, first start, when I first started it, it was like, okay, I put the baby on one hip, I threw one suitcase up under one arm, I grabbed the other one, and I started going up the stairs. Because all they told me to do was, everything you own is in these suitcases, this is your child, you have nothing else, and you need to get up the stairs. So I grabbed the baby, I take the one suitcase under the arm, grab the other one, and I start going up the stairs. And they were like, cut, cut, no, no, no. So they started to weigh down the bags and they kept telling me to do the same thing. And finally they ended up having to load them with ammunition so that all I could do was what you saw because um, I, you know, I was stronger, I think, than they expected. (laughs) So how – I'm wondering
2: how then – How early did they conceive that they wanted this to be a bit of a reference to Battleship Potemkin? If they weren't telling you directly that you need to keep this baby in the carriage, that seems like it would be pretty important to the homage. And I'm wondering if they just sort of found it on the day. Do you know anything about that?
0: I don't. I don't have a clue. Um, I was the least in the loop of anybody. Um, and as I said, when it came time for for me, they said, "Here's the baby, here's the baby carriage, here's your suitcase. That's it. Get up to the top of the stairs." <laughs> and you know, that was like, well, that's you know, that's not what they intend. But they never came back and said it needs to be more of a struggle. Um, but they, you know, we ended up making it work by by weighting down the the uh, suitcases. Wow. And um, and they were very heavy. Yeah, it sounds like <laughs>
2: it. So you also are carrying around suitcases of ammunition. It's <laughs> a real yes, danger. Yeah, that's element.
0: what is in those suitcases.
2: Maybe they need to get that baby away from you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, never thought of it that way.
2: <laughs> now, um, this movie is also unique in that Giorgio Armani did the wardrobe for this film, and uh, I can't imagine that your torn-up wool sweater was Armani. But do you know if it was?
0: Oh God, no, it wasn't. Again, that that goes back to that situation where. Um, they had me in a little, and that this this original suit wasn't Armani either. It was a thrift shop find. Oh. Um, but they had found this little suit, and then they cut it to sort of fit the period. Little wool, I seem to remember it being sort of a bluish houndstooth kind of a thing. Um, and and when um, De Palma said that this wasn't what he was looking for at all, they hauled me back, and they just went through the um, through the the costume truck through all of their extra stuff to find the raddiest sweater they could and the, you know, raddiest blouse and all of that. And it, so it, that was definitely not part of him. That was, uh, again, just spur of the moment, got to get her done thing.
2: Well, Melody, I want to learn a little bit about you. Now, you're currently a teacher at the Phoenix Rising School where you uh, do an alternative education plan, correct? And you... um. There's an outdoor element to the school as well. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah, it's
0: really wonderful. We've got uh, ten beautiful acres out here in Western Washington, and uh, the buildings take up very little space. So there is a lot of natural ground out there. Um, we have uh, once a week we have multi-age uh, groups. We call them houses, and we get out there. We build. We work in the organic garden. Um, Each of the houses actually built like a little clubhouse, so we did a lot of construction work with the kids last year. We have, on Fridays, we do, uh, we put away the books and, uh, we do workshops. So the kids can be doing every, anything from BMX biking, uh, to knitting. We do some video workshops, um, We just had a building robots workshop. I was teaching watercolor. Oh my god! Um, And then once a week, the kids also have an an actual class in um, outdoor education. My class, first and second graders, Uh, it's called woods play, and it just gives them an opportunity to get out there, play in nature. in, In real nature and use real natural things rather than something that somebody in uh, some corporation has decided to create for children. The children are using their imaginations, uh, and it's really just a, a wonderful thing to see. And
2: where can people find information on that school?
0: Oh, the school is the thephoenixrisingschool.org, and it is available on uh, Facebook at uh, the Phoenix Rising School. Uh, we even have recess. I mean, here, I, I don't know about what's going on in California or Chicago anymore. But I know here in Washington, with all of the testing, they've taken recess away from children. Oh, we don't even um, have school
2: and... down here anymore. It's just a big free. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. Don't come back. Down. But
0: anyway, up here, they don't they, they barely have recess here anymore. And I don't know. I mean, adults can't function without having a break. How do you expect children to function without it? They don't they they don't give them anything except the book, and, and for some children they need, and just like us, you know, we need another creative outlet. So uh, I'm just really proud to be able to be one of the founding uh, faculty members of this school, too, so... Uh, It's been very exciting. Thank you for asking.
2: My pleasure. Melody, thank you so much. Like I said, you were one of the first people I thought of for this, and the fact that I got you on here to talk about one of my favorite scenes was a real treat for me. So uh, I can't thank you enough. Thank
0: you because, you know, I'm up here in Podunk, Washington. (laughs) I would never have thought that somebody would ever give me any consideration Uh, And it's just been a real treat for me. So thank you very much. I Uh, appreciate it.
2: Thank you, Melody. Have a great day.
0: You too. Bye-bye.
2: Welcome back. We're going to start something new today where we talk about music. I'll be talking to a dear friend of mine about composing music, working for director Tony Scott, who directed Top Gun, Days of Thunder, Man on Fire. We'll be talking about sound effects. We'll be talking about just life behind the mixer in a brand new segment I like to call... I was there tuned... Hello and welcome to I Was There Tune, T-U-N-E. Not T-O-O-N? No, nope, that may be coming though, okay. <laughs> because I'm clearly
1: setting up a pun precedent for this segment at the end that I'm going to have to stick to. So Matt, please, before you introduce me, I'd like to make a case <laughs> okay, for you to use a liquid U with tune, so we know. Oh, cartoon and then musical tune.
2: Tune. I find liquid U to be the most reprehensible sound a human can make.
1: No argument. Really? But I still insist. When you sit down to watch the
2: evening N-E-W-S, what do you watch? Well, it'll be the news. (laughs) My guest today (laughs) is James Jimmy Blades Bladen. He's a dear friend of mine. He's a music editor, composer. He works with me a lot. This guy helped me record and produced the theme song to this very podcast. That is right. And because remember when I brought it to you, it was really just a it was jaunty little bluegrass thing wasn't it it was in bad shape man. (laughs) (laughs) you worked with tony scott
1: yes i did that's right
2: rest in peace tony scott Uh, a bit of a tragic figure
1: yes he had had a tragic end but we're here to
2: celebrate the life and career of tony scott made a lot of, of of enjoyable films
1: but he was quite a character right he was a, a, a very kind of man's man I worked on I worked on a television show called Numbers. I was the music editor for that. And I Numbers with a backwards three in it, right? Numbers with a backwards three. Yeah. But anyway, so Tony, Mr. Scott. First name basis. Damn. Wow. I think it was the beginning of the fourth season where the season premiere was going to be directed and it in fact was directed by Tony Scott. That's a big get. It was a big get. But they their their company, Scott Free Films. Oh produced the show okay and that is that ridley and tony ridley and tony yes Which their offices by the way when you go into them they're very pet friendly and so when you go into the offices they're dogs everyone has dogs at their thing they're roaming freely around in the offices huh. which is uh you made a face of kind of <laughs> repugnance sometimes utopia has its limits you know what i mean yeah I yeah personally I don't know if I'd I'd want to be in that environment. Cats now, mm. now we're talking. There's a bunch of cats. <laughs> okay,
2: we're seeing your bias. I yet. just lost half my audience. Yeah. Speaking of cats, hold on. Come oh. here, you fat angel. Why don't you say something? <laughs> <laughs> what was that? <laughs> just dropped oatmeal.
1: <laughs> Sorry, go on. But anyway. uh so Tony did direct the first and it was a big episode. It was like boats and uh helicopters, there were hydrofoils. And so, you know, the show wants to make a big splash at the premiere and so a lot of resources are put behind it and Tony's doing it. So there were there were some sounds in the uh in the show that the editor, the picture editor put in, which were these these things called etol hits there's a guy i believe his name is robert etol who makes sound design and that sort of thing and he made these large booms and stuff that you can license to put in your project now normally you would just buy a sound effects library and then you just can, you have a license forever to use it these from my understanding are you have to license separately every time you want to use his sounds it's like the difference between buying a car and leasing a car yeah, it's like you have to pay it like a song. Like you have to like pay, for, but is, this is a three-second long sound effect. Just Is this guy still alive? Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know. Hope I'm not. guessing he is. Uh. But somehow his sounds got into the hands of picture editors, and they like to put those in because I guess you know, they're good sounds. But is that kind of the
2: deal? He thinks like all I got to do is get him in. People fall in love with him. They can't imagine any other way. And then
1: I got him for life. I My name's him. Robert E. Yep, yeah, exactly. Okay. You, you've just described his business model. <laughs> That's all written on his uh, business card. <laughs> so anyway, we had some of these Etoll hits, which were literally, I can't make the sound for you exactly. I could, but well, then, then I could, would have to pay be a millionaire. Yeah. No, I'd have to pay a royalty, oh. but I'll do it like the, but the sound, just so you understand, it's not anything special. It's just like a pfft, that's it. I mean, it's like that. It's just a, a large boom. Let's do a few of those. Yeah, see mine's bassier. Them... Oh, I thought mine was bassier. Was
2: it maybe because we... <laughs> we should say our names before each one? Okay, I'm Matt. This <laughs> is James Bladen. <laughs> no, wait. Why would you have to do your full name? <laughs> <laughs> no, that was pretty weeny. That was do you do a lot of sound effects? Can you do a gun shot like a pistol? Right, tat, tat, tat. Okay, no, now you're just mocking.
1: <laughs> no, do a do a do a gun and tell me what the brand and year of the gun is.
2: Okay, well, this is like a, a beretta sidearm. Famous okay. for like Bruce Willis and dialogue.
1: What year were these manufactured? These
2: were all throughout the late 80s, latter half of the 20th century. Okay. Most popular gun in the late 20th century. Okay. <laughs>
1: So there were di- it was hitting different surfaces. Yeah, like there were a couple of Rico's in there. That's right, a couple of Rico's, um, a couple Suaves. Do,
2: you want to do? Let's do machine guns.
1: Okay, let's, you're going to have the advantage of me on all of these. I'll, I know. I'll do. You, you do an
2: Allegheny sentence. I'll do a machine gun. You do an okay. Allegheny sentence. All right, here we then go. And I'll do another one. All right. Okay.
1: <laughs> this is great podcasting. Say hello to my little friends. <laughs> Yippee ki motherfucker! <laughs> Ask yourself, do you feel lucky, punk? It's a mortar.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> now you can't see that at at uh, at home, but. <laughs> I think the hand gestures also <laughs> add to, because there, there was actually spray coming out of the mortar when it when it hit. There was a little, I saw the dust <laughs> spreading out. That was nice. So Tony Scott. Yes. Uh, he would come on to the stage where the mixing stage was our final thing where we're putting all the sound and the effects and the dialogue all together and we're mixing it. Normally we would spend about two days mixing an episode of Numbers. Uh, but for this, I think we spent five or six days doing it. And Tony was there and always pacing around. He, and I believe he wore the exact same. I, wanna, I'm, I'm, I don't want to call it a sweatshirt because that sounds like it's a jacket and you would wear it every day. Uh-huh. This was like a wrap. It was like a shirt. <laughs> it was a shirt that had a feather sort of embossed on the back shoulder, like left shoulder. And it was like a shirt, but it was kind of like a zip up shirt. So it seemed odd to me that you would wear it every day.
2: Was he wearing, his other clothes were the same?
1: Like he had... Like the same He was going the pant- same
2: place every night and coming from that same place or something?
1: No, I think he was changing clothes, but wearing the same shirt. But it didn't, see, it didn't strike me as like a jacket that you would wear every day. Yeah. It was very thin. Do you gather
2: he had anything underneath that? Or that was touching I, his skin? Maybe a, th- a thin
1: tee. And what do you think do you that feather's I mean? all about? I don't know. Okay. I really didn't feel comfortable asking him. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, the, now this is all going to tie back to the toll hit. That was not for naught. The toll hit was put in by um, the picture editor for things that were going to be uh, accented in, in the show. So there were various times where probably we'd cut to a uh, flashback or something like that, and you hear the... <laughs> That yeah, was this a good one. That was best one. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. The trick is, I guess, just be in the moment. Um, so that, though, there were probably five or six of these Etoll hits, and ahead of time we were saying, oh, "We're not going to license these things. We we don't have the money to pay for all of these Etoll hits. Why are you even using them in the first place? I don't know. They sh- th- that's the point, man. They should be kept out of the hands of of editors because they probably don't realize that uh, that they have to pay. Yeah. They just have them in their thing. God damn it. So the the trick now was, like, Tony loves these sounds. We have <laughs> he it, does. Yeah, he loves He's them. He's probably in on it with Robert e. He's probably getting a cut. It's payola. Yeah, exactly. So he uh, loved the sounds and was told, I guess, by someone, someone very ballsy, said, we're not going to, we can't pay for these. And he just said, well, you got to, you know, replace them with something just as good. So, you know, they handed it to, I think that... It was three-tiered. It was like the the sound effects people were going to try to come up with a boom that was similar because it really was like a sound effect. Uh, Our composer was going to try to recreate it. And I was trying to recreate it too because um, we were just trying to massively cover this thing. So we each made a ton of these sounds and they were each bigger than than the last. You know, they're just these gigantic hits. And every day we would kind of play him these sounds and he was like, nope, nope. These none of them are, are as good. Play me the original, and then you, you'd hear it poof, now. Play the new one, poof, nope, <laughs> it's not as good. But anyway, so so we ended up covering it. But that's that can happen a lot in, in the world of post production where people, you know, temp love is what we call it, where you fall in love with what's been temped in. That happens sometimes with even music cues that people put in. Um, where they want a license that happened recently on a show that I'm working on now where they put, the editor put in music as temp that the people just fell in love with. And the composer, no matter how good and no matter how good the original thing that they put in, they just go like, we love this one thing. It's called temp love. Well, that's a, I mean, it's an unofficial, but do you just call it that or do you, between
2: you and your buddies when you're getting mixing drinks?
1: Uh, (laughs) 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 No, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's the, it's the term that is widely used. Temp love. Temp love. People fall in love with the temp. Oh. Uh, uh, I wish I had a good wrap up for the Tony Scott story. <laughs> you don't need a good wrap up.
2: You know. You know how we'll wrap this up? Yeah, I'll put in a, an toll esque hit
1: esque. Please don't. Yeah, I, I don't got that kind of money. No,
2: no. How much? What, how much did it cost to license an Etoll hit?
1: That's a good question. I don't know if if I ever was on the. I wasn't privy to that. You but know I'm, what? I'm going to say it doesn't
2: matter. What you're about to hear is an Etoll hit, and I, I just want you to know that I am I mortgaged my house to put in this Etoll hit. Okay.
1: Okay, and I'm going to set this up by saying my name? Just your name, and then it's going to be a big, Giant. booming, explosive hit. Okay. Here we go. James Bladen. <laughs> Thank you, James. Thank you, Matt. <laughs> I'm sure that was fine, whatever you just did. <laughs>
2: I Was There Tune. Hold on, we're not done yet. Just because we have a new segment doesn't mean we're still not gonna have. I wasn't there too. This is I Wasn't There Too, the segment where I talk about people that were cast in but didn't end up in, or were almost in, the production in question. You know what I mean. Before we even get to the untouchables, I do want to comment on last episode's Benicio del Toro trifecta because there was someone who wrote on the episode page on WolfBop.com and got all three of them right. And they are Darth Maul in Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, Fenster in The Usual Suspects, and Dario in License to Kill. I'm impressed. Portland Robert, you did a fine job. Now on to today's I Wasn't There Too. Oh my God. The reason I had to conclude this one is because there's a cavalcade of actors that were once attached to this role, mostly in the role of Elliot Ness. Mickey Rourke was rumored. And I remember this is also, I'm getting my information from the internet, not Mickey Rourke himself. Although I I may be getting the more reliable source from the internet. So he was apparently attached as Elliot Ness, Mickey Rourke. And uh, Andy Garcia was originally considered for Frank Nitti, the bad guy at the end. He goes, harass me, treasure man, Uh, but ended up playing George Stone. Also because Armani was the costume designer and apparently was quoted as saying Don Johnson was his male muse, suggested that he play Ness. But according to the online internet, Michael Douglas, William Hurt, Jack Nicholson, Tom Berenger, Nick Nolte, Mel Gibson were all at one time considered for the role. And apparently it was even offered to Harrison Ford, but he turned it down. And that's just too many people, too many big names, too many luminaries not to include on the segment. I like to call...
0: Well,
2: that's it for today's episode of I Was There Too. Thank you for joining me. If you haven't already, please leave a review on iTunes. The more reviews and the more positive reviews, the better visibility we get. The better visibility we get, the more high-status guests we... Actually, don't think we want high-status guests for this show. That's the whole point. All right, give me a shitty review and then don't even review it on top of that. I'm just kidding. Don't really do that. Give positive reviews. We'll be all right either way. I do find that when I get to the end of each of these episodes and I'm recording these things, I've just about become delirious. Does that happen to you guys when you make my podcast? All right, let's take this thing home. And as always, if you know somebody that would be good for the show, please email me at Iwasthere2pod, P-O-D, at gmail.com. That would be a great help. And in the meantime, I continue to cook up some great ideas for guests, and we're doing our best to find them. Next week's episode is a goodie, so tune in with a download. My name is Matt Goarly. Eat all hit. Wow,
0: wow, wow. <sighs> pop, 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 pop. <laughs>
2: Wolfpop is part of Mid Roll Media, executive produced by Adam Sachs, Matt Gorley, and Paul Shear.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more